The Bible is our book as God's Word, inspired and inerrant. It is to inform and instruct all that we do. Indeed, we turn to it each and every week to be informed, to be instructed, but to know and see our God. So I'd encourage you guys to turn to the book of Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 3, where we will finish up the rest of that chapter this morning. And as we turn there, would you join me in prayer to this God that we're getting ready to hear from? God, first of all, I just want to thank You that when we come to Your Word, we know that we are being addressed from a good Creator, Father God. So may You help us humbly receive from You, knowing that You speak things for our good, that You have designed things for our good, for our enjoying of You, for our living the way that You had intended us to live. And so God, where we're off of that... Where we're living outside of your design, God, would you bring us back? If that takes conviction, if that takes more, God, we ask that you bring it because we want to glorify your great name. God, address your people this morning. Help us to be humble and listen. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. There are reminders around us all the time, every single day. All of us see many, many reminders that link us together. We see it when we go out to our yard and there are weeds growing. We, we see it when we look at our children. We, we see it when we drive past cemeteries and we're reminded again that, that something has gone tragically and horribly wrong. See, all of us are linked together. To one ancient and very tragic event. And this ancient and tragic event that we are all rooted to is found in Genesis chapter 3. And the reminders of Genesis 3 and the fall and the curse that ensues are all around us. You see them when we see cemeteries, we're reminded that death still has a part to play. We see them when we, when we go through childbirth. We're reminded of the the pain that that has entered into the world. We we see them when we see thorns and thistles, when we sweat in our jobs and what we do. We see the effects of the fall all around us. And we ought to be reminded again and again that we're all linked to this and it's more tragic than we believe. But God sought after man and the woman even after their sin. And He addresses them here in in Genesis chapter 3. His good creation is cursed. His people are cursed. They're covered. And they're kicked out. God in the face of man's rebellion cannot do nothing. God, as this holy, good, gracious creator God, has to act in the face of sin and rebellion. But what His actions show us are once again more about His good Holy, kind, generous, gracious character. So the Lord in Genesis chapter 3, after questioning man and woman, addresses the serpent. If you look in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this. Now it's interesting how He addresses the serpent. Before He comes to the man and the woman, He draws them out by these kind and gracious questions. Remember this? He says, where are you? What, have you? what have you done? To the serpent, he comes and he says to them, because you have done this. There's no time for explanations. There's no questioning drawing out the serpent. He's not doing that. That's not how he's dealing with the serpent. He addresses him because of what he has done. But what has he done? He has, he has tempted humanity. He has deceived the woman into thinking something that wasn't true. And for deceiving the woman, the serpent is cursed. So after in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see God bless the animals and all the beasts of the field. Here he comes to an animal, a beast of the field that's craftier than all the others, and he pronounces a curse on him. You look at verse 14 again. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And a curse is the complete opposite of God's blessing. So where God's blessing would have been his divine enablement, his, his enjoyment placed upon them to live according to their design, this, this curse would be the opposite of that. Where now they are subjected to impotence, to be unable to fulfill what they were originally created to do. 
So God places a curse on the serpent. And God gives this serpent a, a visible reminder of its curse. See again in verse 14, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now verse 14 at the end, it's not about, is this when snakes lost their legs and started crawling on their bellies? It's not what we're talking about here. That is maybe part of it we, we don't know. What is being symbolized here, what is being represented here, is that God is reminding the serpent now of his place. The serpent is Satan. It's not just the serpent. This is Satan. And God is saying of Satan, now because you have done this thing, you're going to crawl around in defeat and humiliation for the rest of your days. This is what's really going on here. It's a sign of, of humility, of humiliation to be crawling around in the dirt. So Satan has been subjected from verse 14 on to defeat. This is not, once again, a dualistic universe where the serpent has great power over humanity and God is kind of like, what do I do? I guess I'll just try to face it with my equal power. No, that God says you are in defeat and you will crawl around in defeat for the rest of your lives. Now you still have some moves that you can make. You can still crawl around and wiggle some, but it will only be according to my will. We don't have a dualistic universe and the battle lines are drawn up in verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So the battle lines have been drawn. And in many ways, verse 15 kind of lays out the rest of the Scripture. Because all through the rest of the Bible, and we'll see this as we keep walking through Genesis, you see two lines going on here. You see the line of the seed of the serpent and the line of the seed of the woman. Now the seed of the serpent is at enmity between the, with the seed of the woman from here on out. The seed of the serpent is not little snakes. Not talking about little snakelets or whatever you call them. Talking about anyone who would fall under the, the, the lie of the serpent. That life is lived better without God and without being under His good reign and good rule. Those people that would say that life is better without God and without submission to Him are seed of the serpent. That is, they are the unrighteous ones. They are in rebellion against God. The seed of the woman is, is kind of the opposite. They are the righteous. The ones who have placed their, traits, their trust in God. They have placed their faith in this one. They have decided that they are going to live according to how He says to live. What He commands they want to submit to. That is the seed of the woman. And you are going to see this line clearly drawn out in Genesis. But although there is sin and rebellion and there is enmity between these two different seeds and they are battling it out as a word, the outcome is not in doubt as verse 15 reminds us. He says that he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. That is, this is a fatal strike to this serpent. Now we're reminded in verse 15 that God didn't have to take some time for deliberation. He didn't see Eve fall into temptation, deceived by the serpent and think like, hold on a second, now we've got to reconfigure this whole thing. What are we going to do here? How are we going to solve this problem? No, here's what you see. You see Him come after humanity graciously. You see Him addressing the serpent. And you see Him clearly pronouncing, not a plan B, but the plan that was there all along. This was the plan. That there's one from the seed of the woman that's going to come and strike the head of the seed of the serpent. Now we could ask the question then, is sin, was the original sin, was the fall, was that against the will of God? The answer is absolutely. God said, don't eat of this tree. What did woman do? She ate of the tree. She gave it to the man. He ate as well. They sinned. That was against the will of God. But we could also say, is that against the will of God? We could say no. Because in one way, we have the revealed will of God. The will of God's command where He says, don't do these things and do other things. Right? We have that all through the Scripture revealed to us. What we don't have revealed is, is God's sovereign will. God's will of decree. Where He knows all things, where He holds all things, where He as His sovereign Creator God doesn't have to scramble for a plan B, but has this as part of His plan all along, somehow mysteriously working it all so that He might be most glorified in the end. 
And so yes, their sin was against the will of the Lord, but no, it was not as well. That God here already has a way for them to be made right through the seed of the woman. So there's so much mystery, but the truth that this good God reveals in Genesis, right here in verse 15, is that He will act and He will win. And what's not a mystery, I think, from verse 15, if you are student of the Word, is what verse 15 is pointing us to, or rather, who it is pointing us to. You see, the, the seed is a collective now. Right? There, there, there's a people that it's pointing to. The seed of the woman is a people, the people of God. But it's also singular in the end, right? Because we see that, that He, singular, will strike the head. And the seed of the serpent is likewise plural. We, we know this all too well today, that there is a collective people that fall under the seed of the serpent, that are in rebellion to the living God. And yet, there is one whose head is bruised. And Genesis traces these seeds. We go from Adam, we'll go to Seth, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, all the way to The one who is the ultimate snake crusher, who is Jesus. You see this whispered, thought about all through the Scripture. They're always pointing to one who will come and ultimately deliver, ultimately save, ultimately put down evil. And we know this is Jesus. 1 John 3.8 says it this way, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is why He came, was to destroy the works of the devil, to smash the head of the seed of the serpent. See, Jesus is the seed of the serpent, or the seed of the woman, not the seed of the serpent. That's the one you don't want to get confused. And as the seed of the woman, He steps into the place that Adam was. He is the second Adam, who is fully human, and yet fully God who stands in the midst of temptation as he too hears the the slithering hiss from a snake in his ear. But he did it under much harder conditions than what Adam had. Adam had ideal conditions, perfect place, a, a perfect helper that God made for you out of your own body. God put her in this garden where God has richly provided. God has been gracious to you. He walks with you. Jesus faces this temptation after 40 days of not eating. And not in this beautiful, lush garden, but in a a place that's full of rocks, a wilderness that's where the wild beasts would be. And yet, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam perfectly succeeded and obeyed. He was tempted, but was successful. And even with that, we see his heel was struck. The, The seed of the serpent incited humanity to lash out against Jesus Christ, to to put Him to death, to crucify Him. And He was bruised. And another thing I notice about verse 15 is that both the seed of the serpent is bruised, but also the seed of the woman is bruised as well. Jesus is struck on the heel, bruised at the cross, crucified. This reminder is that once sin entered into the world, it doesn't go out easily. That once sin got into the garden, it would be costly to remove it. So the bruising of the seed of the woman came at the cross. A reminder that with great sacrifice, the seed of the serpent is crushed. It seemed like this heel strike from the serpent would have been fatal. Jesus dies. He's in a tomb. We may not feel the force and the weight of that because we know the end. But if we were there, we would have felt like the seed of the serpent has struck and it is a fatal blow. But indeed, that is not what has happened. That instead of being a fatal wound to the seed of the woman, it turned out to be the fatal wound for the seed of the serpent. As Jesus is dead and buried in a tomb, but we see in three days that this wound did not turn out to be fatal. That Jesus raises from the dead, triumphs over His foe. It wasn't a wound that would kill Him. Not a fatal blow, but it was to the serpent. We read about this in Hebrews, or Revelation chapter 12. It says in verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. 
For the accuser, that's the seed of the serpent, the seed, that is Satan himself, the accuser, has been thrown down. He accuses him day and night before our God. So what is their conquering? And they have conquered him by what? By the blood of the Lamb. This Lamb that was slain on a cross. The one that John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They have overcome, they have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of His testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Because the seed of the woman has smashed the seed of the serpent. He has delivered the fatal blow at the cross. And while the the serpent may have a few wiggles left in him, the fatal blow has been struck and it's only a matter of time before he is finally and fully put away. To look at the cross and to see victory for the seed of the woman, to see victory for your own life, is to be part of the seed of the woman as well. We get that same victory. And when you look at the cross and you see true victory, see true defeat for Satan and sin and death, that is what we call belief. That is what we call faith. And when you do that, you now have become part of the seed of the woman. Now we're all part of this story. And we're part of this story whether we're part of one seed or the other. And humanity has been divided into two camps here. You're either seed of the woman or seed of the serpent. There are no other options. Jesus wins the victory for us on the cross and invites us to the winning team. Declaring to us that He is the winning team. And it may not seem like it now, but one day it is coming where it will be very, very clear. And there will be no mistakes on who has triumphed ultimately. 1 John 3, 9, after it talks about Jesus as this one who appears to destroy the works of the devil, reminds us of this, that no one is born of God. Notice the the seed, the offspring imagery that's going on here. No one is born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Offspring, seed. Now we're included in this because of what Jesus has done. We are included in the seed of the woman, which we did not deserve because we were in rebellion to God. We were part of the seed of the serpent. We did not deserve to switch camps, but God earned that right for us. And now we are born offspring from God. He has done this. We are seed of the woman. He has invited us to be a part of the winning team and extended out to us the same victory that He has won. In Romans 16.20 it says this, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan. And we're all for that. What a great verse. But who does He use to do it? Look at, look at the inclusion here. Under your feet. This is not Jesus. Jesus is talking over the next word. Under your feet is the church. The people of God. The seed of the woman. God is going to crush Satan with us included in this. We are part of this seed. He has struck the fatal blow and has extended out to us this victory, this triumph, so that Satan will be crushed under our feet. When we were the ones that bought into his lie. What grace of God. Those who are in Christ share in the victory that He won at the cost of His life. And He extends this out to us freely. It was great cost, but to us it's free. So Satan delivered this huge blow to humanity by tempting the man and the woman to sin against God. But from that time on, he's been subjected to humility and has even known his defeat. And the curse directed at Satan carried some some good news for the woman, for humanity. No good news for the servants, for his future. The woman does get good news here. I'm assuming the man and woman are here listening to God curse the serpent. And what does she hear? She gets to hear this curse that one from the woman is going to come and is going to strike down this serpent. After she's rebelled against God, God lets her in to hear what he's saying to the serpent. That somehow her offspring is still a part of this plan. In other words, this is the grace of God that that the woman is here listening to this, hearing this, and knows that she still has a part to play. I mean, what a privilege and an honor that she still has this opportunity. She rebelled against God, and yet God says, someone's going to come from you. What an honor from the Lord, not to just cast her off and to smash her out as well. 
But to say, I have this plan, it's not a plan B, someone from your broken line is going to come and do this. This shows us how God treats sinful humanity. Kindly. Very kindly. Inviting still to Himself, using in His plan even to the end. And if we turn to Him, we're reminded that we're not put on the shelf as damaged goods. And you don't have a part to play anymore. You've messed it up, I'm putting you on the shelf. No, God brings us into His team and then He puts us in the action. Satan's going to be crushed under our feet. God remakes the shattered image so that He might be glorified. And He uses us indeed for that purpose, that He might receive glory. But not all that the woman heard that day would have been good news. In fact, she received a lot of things that wouldn't have been encouraging. If you look in verse 16. To the woman He said... I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And in pain you shall bring forth children. From verse 16 on, as we read through what God says to the woman and to the man, we're going to see them zeroed in on their roles as male and female. It's a huge part of this passage. So before the fall, man and woman are completely equal in their personhood, equal in essence, image bearers before the living God, both bearing His image out to do what, reflect back to Him and do what He has called them to do. Both of them are equal in that. But their roles were different. Now some would say that their roles were the same, their equality and personhood were the same, but I think we see different in the Scripture. That is that man, he is named man, he's tied closely to the ground. Very similar words. He's to work and keep the ground. Cultivate this garden. Keep uncleanness out of this place. Woman was to be the helper of man. Not to do the exact same thing, but to help man in that. We see that helper is a glorious term. We're not afraid of saying that woman is a helper to man. Because this word helper is used of God Himself. It's an essential Thing, essential function that she is performing for man. So we lift that up and say being a helper is not a lowly thing. This is a godly thing. But it's different. It's not the exact same role that the man has. Man names the beast, not woman. In fact, he names woman. He's given the command from God, don't eat of this tree. And the implication is you're to pass this on to the rest of humanity, including this woman. He is to initiate the marriage. So man is to, therefore, leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Man's to initiate those kind of things. Man, in other words, is the head of the woman. He is the leader of this relationship, the head of his marriage. He is to lead, provide for, and protect his woman. This is his role. Woman, as a helper, is to follow this man's headship. This is God's very good design from the beginning. This was his intent, his design. That although they are equal in personhood, they are distinct in their roles that they're carrying out before the Lord. The Lord does not find this displeasing whatsoever. He pronounces this is very good. This is how it is made to work. But the fall comes and messes everything up. So Satan, what does he do? He usurps God's given order. Where God created man first, then the woman. God, or Satan, Satan comes in and disrupts that. He goes to the woman first, not to the man. He's working against God's given order. And humanity falls. Now this is where the, the roles get all confused and mixed up. Now, we would still say that after the fall, we are equal in our personhood. There is not a difference between male and No one is not worth more than the other. It's not what we're speaking of. But we're still different in our functions. Different in our roles. So God, instead of coming to the woman first in the garden, God calls out to man. Man is accountable. He is the head of this family. He is the head of his wife. He is going to be accountable for her. God and the rest of the Scripture hold Adam responsible. 1 Corinthians 15, Adam is the one who is responsible for this. Romans 5, Adam is the one who is responsible for this. He is the one who is called to account for this. And so where the fall does disrupt God-given marriage and gender roles, there still are different roles. So the woman here is is seeing this result of the fall in her God-given role. So presumably, she was to be fruitful and multiply. We see this in Genesis chapter 1. That was already going to presumably be happening. But now there's going to be a lot of pain associated with it. Now motherhood that God designed for woman is going to be full of pain. Pregnancy. Start to end, right? 
painful. Indeed, inside that we have all sorts of other pains. Miscarriage. We have even the birth itself. And I don't think this is just the birthing process. Having children. Raising them. There's pain there. All sorts of pain. Imagine the sting of this that is handed down from God before modern medicine. Where women didn't have epidurals or places that are sanitary and clean to have children. Doctors that are trained and know what they're doing. The sting of this is heavy. The consequences are felt still, though, in more than what we'd realize heavy ways. But I want us to notice as well the grace of God. It might be easy for you ladies to be like, oh yeah, point out the grace of God in this pain and childbearing. Is there really grace there? I think there is. Because there's still childbearing. And as hard as it is to be a parent, isn't that a privilege? That's, that's a grace of God that He says, not that you're throwing off all that you could do now, you don't get to do that anymore. Because you messed it up. Yeah, there's pain in it, but God still, by His grace, allows this to happen. Allows it so much to be the seed of the woman who's going to ultimately come and stomp the head of the seed of the serpent. God is gracious. It is a privilege and a joy, even in the pain, to still be able to have children. To live that out. And so the woman and all women haven't been shelved because of their sin. So you know what? You mess this up. You're done. No. There's going to be pain in what you're doing, but you still can do this. I want you to do this. Judged, yes, but not shelved by God. And all of you, if you are a male or female, have experienced the pain of this. Because if you're a boy, you've had a mother, and you've experienced the pain of that too. In lots of different ways. All of us know the weight of this, but we know that it's not the end. Because one from the seed of the woman has come. And has delivered the fatal blow. And He will finally and fully eradicate all traces of this curse one day. Women are saying, yes, come soon. God has not killed woman here. Just what she deserved. Man deserves it too. I'm not trying to be different there. But she's alive. And indeed, she's even able to give life by birth. She still has a role. So not only will her role as a mother now be full of pain, but if you continue in verse 16, so will her role as a wife. It says, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, when we read desire for your husband, she's, we need to be careful there. She's not thinking like, I desire you. That's not what's going on there. The desire that is spoken of is this desire to control. We see it again in chapter 4, verse 7, where he tells Cain, sin desires you. In other words, it wants to rule over you. It wants to own you. This is the way the woman is now going to relate to her husband. You want to, you're going to desire your husband. You're going to want to control your husband. You're going to want to dominate and rule over him. Where a woman was made to submit and follow the headship of the Lord, she wants to rule. Where she was made to help, she wants to control. He will rule over you, it says. Look at all the the roles that are now in conflict. Where it seems as if, what is going on here, where a woman desires to control and, and own her husband, to have authority there, the sinful response from the man seems to be pushing back hard against that, where it would be, He will rule over you. Almost this heavy-handed rule from the man. Instead of godly headship and godly leadership, he's going to try to put that down in sinful ways, and it's not good. So man was intended to lead in godly ways, and now there's going to be strife between this man, the head, and this woman who is this helper. Now there's all sorts of sinful responses to this, but this man, who is to be this godly leader, sat passively by as a snake crawled into the garden and started talking to his girl. This is one temptation of men, that we be passive wimps, that we not step up and lead where we need to be leading. Snakes shouldn't come into the garden and be whispering to our wife's head. 
We can't be passive in that. But there's another temptation here. This heavy-handed rule that we'd be heavy-handed oafs. Or we would try to rule over our wives with this hard fist. But here's what's happened is that sin has disrupted these relationships. Woman has sinned and now there's marital strife in their relationship because she wants to rule and he's trying to rule over her. So marriage now is is a battle of the sexes. Genders is now a battle of, of which one's superior. As if everything was completely equal that we should control and relate to each other completely the same, and there's no role distinctions. This is what is now thought of as best for marriage. The roles are mixed up, and there is almost no desire for anyone to want to change it. It's actually thought of in our culture as better if everything, everything is completely equal. If no one has any distinction in their role or function. Now once again, we are not speaking of value and worth and personhood. Those are equal. Anyone who would say different would be wrong. But we do have different roles. And our culture would say that distinguishing between these roles, that submission itself, those are horrible things. And some of the worst words that you can say now. But God would say that these roles have been messed up. And so the best thing is not to just say, let's just do away with them. But let's live in light of what God's good design was in the beginning. So here's the reality is that without knowing your situation, if you're married, I can point to one of your marital problems that you either are working through, will work through, or have worked through. And that's within your roles in marriage. You are struggling there, or you have struggled, or you will struggle there. Because we struggle to want to live out this design that God has given us because we've bought into a lie. That we won't surely die. That there's a better way to do it without God's rule in our life. So I know that there's problems in marriage here. But I want us to notice again the grace of God. That marriage continues. Yeah, her desire is for her husband. And her husband is going to rule over her. So there's this battle that's going on. Who's going to reign? Who's going to rule? Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to wear the pants? All these things are going on. But God still allows this relationship to happen. As many times as me and my wife may or may not fight, like it's still a privilege to be married. It's an honor to go through life with somebody. It's not good that man be alone. God has still, in His grace, allowed these relationships to continue to move forward. And even if there's strife, it's still beautiful in the end. That God is still working these things out for His purposes. So there's a lot of grace in God here. That He would allow this to continue. But man's role is distorted as well. 17 says this. To Adam he says... Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Men are saying, yep. Shouldn't have listened to her. But not only did he disobey God's command, right? He, he listened to the voice of his wife. This is what is said here. He abandoned his headship. He abandoned his leadership role. And he listens to his wife who was listening to the servants. He failed to lead. God doesn't hold her accountable and say, you told that to the man. God goes to man and says, you listened to your wife as she was listening to the serpent. So when he says that the woman you gave me is the problem, he pushes that excuse off. This will never work. You're the head, Adam. You listen to the voice of your wife. Now for some of us, listening to your wife is no temptation. And that's another sermon. You should probably listen to your wife. It's not what's going on here. It's a joke that's like often said that wives can tell any secrets to their husbands because they're not listening anyway, and so they're never going to tell anybody else. That's another sermon, another day. Listen to your wife. But why is this a big deal? Right? This doesn't sound so bad. You listen to your wife. So what? Don't men? Do you listen to your wife? Do you hear some of the things she's saying? Like, why is this such a big deal? Why does God say this? Because you have listened to your wife. Why does He start with that? We're not talking about listening to your wife when she says, hey, we should watch this movie. It'll be really great. You get sucked into a chick flick that's really horrible. That's not the kind of listening we're talking about here. This is the listening to the voice of your wife that says, we don't need to go to church today. Let's just sleep in and relax. That's the listening that he's speaking of. The listening that would come from one that would say, we need to go against the clear command of God. 
That's the listening that's not to be done between man and woman. Not that you just get sucked into a bad movie, but that you get sucked into sinful activity. That you don't lead in the right way. They don't say, nope, God says to meet together and don't neglect to meet together. We're all getting up, we're going to church this morning. That's the kind of thing, the leadership, the headship that Adam was supposed to have. And in listening to his wife, he disobeys God. He submitted to the voice of his wife rather than the voice of God. He failed to lead in a godly way. Now this is a reminder that for the godly leader, for the godly man, for the godly husband, they too are to be in submission. Who is Adam supposed to be in submission to here? It's really clear. You listen to the voice of your wife wasn't the primary problem. You listen to the voice of your wife against the Word of God. In other words, you were supposed to be submitted to my Word. That's the submission you're to live in as the man, as the head of your family. You are to submit to the voice of God. We are to be in submission. Creation shows us that humanity lives best in submission to their good creator God. Man is to submit to Him first and foremost. If we are in submission to God, we will pass on the commands from God to our wives and family and to others. If we are in submission to God, we will check out any snakes that want to climb into our garden. If we are in submission to God, we won't listen to another if they are deceived by this snake. If we are in submission to God, we will lead and we will be accountable. We will be responsible for those around us. This is what godly leadership is and it's all done in submission to God. So on Wednesday, Catherine and I drove separate cars to youth. And so I took the older kids home, Catherine took the baby home, and our kids wanted to catch up with their mom, right? Let's pass her. Let's race her. Let's beat her home. Like, I'm sure you guys have done this. So I'm thinking, all right, let's do this. Let's beat her home. I am all for that. So as they're cheering on, I'm with them, right? We're going to do what we can to beat mom home. And we did, by the way. But as I'm listening to the voice of my children, I'm also reminded that the, the way to be the best driver here, and I have to remind them of this, is not to just submit to their voice and just go as fast as they think I should go to catch her as fast as they think I should. The way to be the best driver, to be the safest driver, for not only for myself but for those kids in the car, is to follow the laws. So it's not good for me to say, you know what, we're going to catch her, so I'm going to cut through Champlain Park if that's necessary. We're going to hop the curve, we're going right through that intersection, we're going over, we'll be, we'll be by her in no time. That would not be godly leadership. That may be listening to their voice, but that would not be godly leadership. And so here's what it is. It's like, I want to listen to them as much as I can. Let's beat her. Let's take her out. Right? We're going to win this. But within submission to the right and proper authority. And this is how men are to lead. Yes, listen. Listen well. But in submission to God, your proper authority in your life and in your marriage. The problem wasn't listening to her voice, but in listening to her voice in opposition to God. Listen well, heed her voice, but do it all in submission to God. Lead. Do what's best for all, not what's best according to her, not what's best according to you. Say, God, what is best? And let's do that. No matter what that best might be, I want to follow that. And so the judgment that God hands down to Adam is, is once again speaking to his role. And it continues. You, commit, you ate of the tree, I commanded you not to eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The ground, which was created by God as a good part of His creation, was made to provide, in in gracious ways, good food for man. Good fruit. Good things. Beautiful to look at. This is what God had intended. This was His design for the land. And now that is overturned, where once again the, the ground is cursed. It's subjected to futility, as Romans 8 would say. It is no longer able to do what it was intended to do in the beginning. Now there's all sorts of pain, all sorts of problems in this. And so I go out to my yard and I had it sprayed the last couple of years by, by professional sprayers. They sprayed four times a year. They'd spray my yard, got rid of the weeds, Bermuda's going strong, everything is great. I'm thinking, alright, I don't need to spend so much money spraying my yard anymore. I'll just do it one time, not the four that they recommended, and I'll save myself a lot of money, and the grass should still be good because it seems well established, right? This is what's supposed to be here. And yet what happens? 
You can't leave it at that. You can't. One spring, the weeds are laughing at me right now. Like they're coming up all over the place thinking, yeah, that joke's on you. You thought we were gone. We're not. We're all too present in your, in your yard all the time. And, and now this is almost natural. Like I had the Bermuda, it's everywhere. There's no spots that, and weeds are coming up in the middle of it. This is almost like the natural state of things now. Imagine for Adam as he hears this, the sting that he would have felt without modern technology. Without tractors to work the land. Without certain chemicals to spray on the ground. He would have struggled and felt this. The thorns just keep coming up where it seems like plants should be growing. God's good gift that He had given is now cursed. Unable to do what God had intended it to do. God's good gift of work to cultivate the land, to keep this garden, is now going to be full of thorns, thistles, sweat, and pain. But there's grace. He doesn't say, you know what, Adam, you you messed up. You can't leave anymore. And forget about working and cultivating the land. Like, you're done with that too. No, he doesn't do that. God still gives him a role. There's there's pain in it, but you still have a role. There's, There's still work to be done. There's still provision for you. Yeah, it's thorns and thistles, but God doesn't have to make good things grow either. And He does. There's so much grace associated with it. It's going to be hard, but the end that man deserved, he's not getting. He deserved to be smashed out. You're dead. You sinned against God. You should surely die. But that's not what's going on here. God is gracious to man. He still provides him a role, still provides him work to do. The end that man deserved for sinning against God isn't pronounced at that time, but it is pronounced. He says at the end that you are dust. And to the dust you shall return. From dust to dust. I think Proverbs 14.12 sums it up well that there is a way that seems right to a man. This fruit looks good. It's good to the taste. But in the end its way is the way of death. So Adam is reminded, as humanity in Adam are reminded that but because of sin, because of the fall, the way is now death. We will return to the dust. The wages of sin is death. And all of this punishment for sin, and it's, it's bad, it's probably worse than we imagine, that, that there's now strife between your relationship with God that you were created to know. There's now strife with your children in, in childbearing. There's now strife in marriage relationships. There's now strife in gender roles. There's now strife in even our work that we do on a daily basis. All that stuff, which is heavy and hard, is not just for Adam. We know this. But 1 Corinthians 15 says, As in Adam, all die. We feel the weight of dust to dust. This is us. Romans 5.12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sin. We are all now a part of this. All a part of this story. When we see thorns and thistles, we're linked back to that ancient story, that ancient tragedy. When we have marriage problems, we can look back and know that we're linked to Adam and Eve. When we look back to these things and we see people buried in the grave, we can know this is our story too. That the devastation of the fall is still ongoing and has reached even to us. And I don't think I can overstate that. And so the question is, how do we respond? How does man respond to this? Now, when you receive bad news, what do you do? When you receive, rephrase that, when you receive overly bad news, horrifying, tragic news, what do you do? Some of us were just driven to despair. I don't even know what to think or to do. If it's because of my sin, I might be drawn into this... Deep depression and mourning, full of shame and guilt. Or some of us, we push back against this. We just fill our hearts with bitterness. I'll show you. Or I'll do better than that. But Adam's response is pretty interesting. Because it seems to be pretty controlled. He's just received very tragic news. Every relationship, all these things that you enjoyed before with God, with your wife, with the land, all those things have been cursed now. All those things are now going to feel the effects in, in ways that you won't even imagine. And yet, here's his response in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Now, Adam and Eve have this response before them. And we don't know exactly what's going on in Adam's mind. We wish we could look back and see that. But I think one commentator says it well. 
that instead of turning away from the bar of God's justice and bitterness and despair, Adam instead turns to his wife and says, I believe God's promise. He has not cast us adrift completely. He will give us the final victory over our enemy and we will again enjoy the richness and fullness of life with God. And because you are the mother of all those who will truly live, I give you the name Eve, living one. I believe God and I will honor you. Now this is just speculation that this is Adam's response. That is almost looking at God's decree. Looking at His handing down of judgment. But He seems to look at it, accept it, accept the weight of it, believe it, trust it, and respond in a way that would seem to be that He believes God and that He puts His faith in Him. That He says, after all this, He doesn't say, you know what, forget you then God, I'll just do things on my own. He doesn't fill His heart with bitterness, He doesn't get driven to despair. He turns to His wife and He gives her this hopeful name, living. You're the mother of the living, you're life. From you is going to come this seed. We don't know that that's all there, but it seems as if Adam's response points in that direction. But Genesis 3 doesn't just explain how things were cursed. It also explains how humanity was covered. 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Adam and Eve had made for themselves... In response to God walking in the garden, they, they had hid themselves. They had covered themselves up. And they had done it very inadequately. They had failed to really actually cover. Their coverings were trying to cover over their shame and their guilt. And they, they were not able to accomplish that as God still calls them to account. When we see God covering them, we're reminded of the, the kindness and severity of God. Clothes are His kind provision. Preparing them to live in a world that's full of thorns and thistles and problems. God provides for them. And He provides for them in a way that they can't provide for themselves. Their coverings were a poor covering where God gives a good one. And it's possible here that, that God is referencing to sacrifice and substitution for their sin and, and, and killing an animal and giving them skins. I'm not sure that that's all there, but it could be that that's hinted at. But what is definitely happening is that God is dealing with their sin in a way that they can't. Which definitely points us onward. He is dealing with their sin and their problem in a way that they were unable to. He is doing something that they couldn't do on their own. So we see His kindness, but we also see His severity, that He can't just not act in the face of sin and rebellion. So we see His severity. Clothes would have then been a reminder over and over again of their shame. They would have told them and reminded them as they saw one another clothed that something has gone tragically wrong. That they're reminded that they were in shame and guilt. That they had to be covered. Things have gone wrong. And the kindness and severity of God are also seen in kicking man out of the garden. Verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like us. I think he's addressing his heavenly court here. He's become like us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So man in his fallen state knows good and evil apart from how God intended it. Apart from relationship and in submission to God. And so they had to be covered. They had to be moved out. This is kindness and severity from the Lord. Because of their sin, they're kicked out. They're bad tenants of the garden. They had to be kicked out of their place. And it's tragic. We had a roommate in college. He thought that life was best lived without paying bills. The rest of the roommates did not agree that that was the way to live life best. It was, it was severe in some ways to kick him out, but kind in other ways. Like, you can't live life like this, you have to pay your bills. Amen. If you can't pay your bills, you probably can't be sleeping on our couch all the time. But as bad as it seems that they were kicked out of the garden, it shows God's kindness. It's tragic, right? They were created for this place. This place was a good place. You could walk with God. You could enjoy His beauty. You could enjoy the fruit He'd provided for you. He'd been gracious to you. He'd been generous to you. Now you're kicked out of it. But we also see His kindness there. That God, once again, doesn't kill them, but He does something good for them here that we may not see. You see, the tree of life is in that garden. A tree that they could have eaten all along, which baffles our minds, right? You could have eaten the tree of life. You could have reached out and taken that tree and eaten the fruit, which seems to have given them eternal life. You could have lived that way forever. But now, you're in this fallen state. You've disobeyed God, and it would not be kind for God to let you sin and then eat of that fruit and live in your fallen state for for on and on. I mean, if you think you... you, That doesn't sound bad. Think of, of Hitler 
being able to continue on in his state forever and ever. That is not kindness. <laughs> kindness is saying, no, we, we're in sin. It is not good that you remain in sin forever. So God kindly kicks them out of the garden. He wants to protect them from continuing in this fallen state forevermore. And to ensure that they don't eat this fruit, He guards the way to the tree of life. You look at verse 24. He drives the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I don't know how you can guard every way, but that's awesome. God cleanses the sanctuary. He's doing the job that Adam didn't do, could, should have done. He's, he's cleansing the sanctuary. He's getting out all uncleanness. That included now Adam and Eve. Humanity. And the way back into this garden is now restricted. It's restricted by God. He put a cherubim there. Because of sin, man is now cast out, banished from his presence, moved out. And we see all sorts of symbols of the temple here, the tabernacle here. That God had walked with His people in the garden. That was a symbol of the future temple that was to come. That that there are trees and fruit and there's rivers flowing here. All these things were symbols of the tabernacle, pointing us onward. Here are so many reminders here. In the east, He he points them out. The temple would have, the entrance would have faced east. He, He drives them out. He puts cherubim in the way. All these things remind us and would have reminded Israel of their tabernacle. In future tabernacles, the access to God was restricted. It was cut off. And guarding the way was a curtain. A thick curtain that included, embroidered on it, cherubim. That would remind them that you don't just come in here any way that you choose. It was restricted. It was cut off. This is now the state that stands between God and humanity. Alienation. Disruption. Problem. You can't come into God and walk with God as you want. This is now a relationship that is distanced. This is spiritual death. You've been cut off from the presence of God. The picture here is clear. Man can't get back into the garden on his own. And the very presence of God, the garden of God they were made to create, made to enjoy and live in, they no longer have access to. Now we should be more precise here when we say that. We said man can't get back into the garden and can't get back into the presence of God that they were made for. But the more precise part of that means that man can't get back into the presence of God they were made to enjoy by himself. Man can't get back into the presence of God and life with Him under His good reign and His good rule in his own work. Or in his own effort. Or in his own striving. That has been cut off. What we do need to be reminded of is that there is one who is the seed of the woman. Who is going to ultimately come... Who is going to put down the seed of the serpent. Jesus' heel was going to strike. And it struck the seed of the serpent. And its heel was bruised as he was crucified. But he ultimately delivered the fatal blow. And while it is certain that what was going on there was the serpent was behind the crucifixion. Surely the seed of the serpent wanted to crush the seed of the woman. Wanted to do away with the seed of the woman finally and fully. But something strange happened. Something more. Something deeper was going on than just the heel strike from the snake. We see in Isaiah 53.10 that just behind the the crucifixion wasn't just this serpent who wants to destroy the seed of the woman, but it it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That there's a bigger plan than just Satan's plan going on in the crucifixion. Acts 2.23 says that he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There's something deeper and better going on than just a heel strike from the serpent. Remember, 3.15 that we read about is not plan B. God isn't trying to figure things out along the way. He has this in mind. He knows that access has been restricted to the garden. He's working to get it out. Remove that restriction. And it happens in Jesus. Yes, He is bruised. He is wounded and crushed. But the serpent gets a fatal blow. And in the events that resulted after the crucifixion, they show that Satan wasn't the only one striking in that moment. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And here's what the Israelites would have been seeing. There's a temple. And later there would be a temple in Jerusalem. It was a place like this garden. It even had garden imagery in this temple. It had a curtain. It was embroidered with these cherubim. Cutting off access to God. Only one person could go in only one time a year. Only under the proper conditions. This was a visible reminder to them. That the way to God has been barred. Has been restricted for you. God's presence is only has limited access by a limited number of people. But when Jesus died. Something strange happened to that curtain. 
The one that was guarded by cherubim. The one that was protected, keeping man from access to the presence of God. The heel was struck, but the head was struck as well. Because when Jesus died, that curtain that stood in the place to restrict the access of God from man was torn top to bottom. All the way through. So that all humanity would now know that the way to God is no longer blocked. Because there was a heel strike and there was a wounding and a bruising, but the blow was delivered and the way into life with God has now been opened up for us by the ultimate snake crusher. He has done what man could not do in reversing the curse. Now he's rolling it back as we go along in history. Satan struck and wounded, but God struck the fatal blow. And on the third day, we're reminded of that blow. That this one who was wounded didn't stay in the grave. That he rose again. And it says of this in Romans 4, that he was delivered up for our trespasses and payment for our sins. And he was raised for our justification. That is to say that you now have a place before God. You are justified in the sight of God. Not based on what you have done, but on the one who has ultimately struck the snake and has put away his power by his blood, by the word of his testimony. He has been defeated and you are now welcomed in. So we can enter into the presence of God that we were made to know and enjoy by the second Adam if we trust in him, believe in him. The way was barred, but it's been opened by Jesus to all who would just trust Him in all of His work. So He doesn't just open a way for us to know Him here as fallen people in a fallen world. He opens up a way for us to be restored to God and to this place of paradise fully. You see this, that we were made to live in that paradise. That's how God designed us and that God is by through Jesus bringing us back to that place. We read about this in Revelation. Revelation 22 says this, The angel of the Lord showed me a river. Here's a river again. Flowing, like it flowed in Genesis. Flowing in this perfect paradise. Bright as crystal. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side, there's this strange thing. It's this tree of life. The one tree that they seem to have rejected is now in full for creation. For humanity to now take. It has 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit, its fruit each month. And the leaves of these trees were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything what? Accursed. That the curse that came in Genesis chapter 3 has been rolled back so much that there's this paradise where we have access to God. The tree of life is now there. Rivers are flowing there. We have complete access to this thing. All access to the curse. All those things have been rolled back finally and fully. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him as they were made to do in the beginning. So if you are a believer, you no longer have to fear You no longer have to hide from the effects of the curse. You no longer have to let those restrain you from doing what God has called you to do. Yes, there will be pain in the offering. But God has struck the final blow. And it won't be long in His coming. Where it is ultimately and finally and fully curses rolled back for good. If you're not a believer, you're invited to the the winning team. Trust in Christ and what He's done. And join us as we go to this place where the river's going to flow, tree of life will be there, presence of God will be there, and we'll worship Him. Let's do that right now. Father, thank You for Your Word, for what You promise. We ask that You would help us, that You would restore in us the image that we were made to bear, that we would do it well. That we would live as, as righteous people, knowing that We do live under the effects of the fall, but you have now in Christ seated us above the fall. To where death no longer has victory over us. To where all the effects of the fall we know will finally and fully be done away with. Father, if there are some that do not know you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. That your kindness that is seen in Genesis 3 would lead them to repentance. But for those who believe, may you encourage our hearts to push back the thorns and the thistles. 
knowing that the snake crusher has come and has delivered the blow. And it's only a few more years, days, time, short amount of time according to the Scripture, when He will finally and fully come and finish off what He started. God, thanks for that promise. Thanks for that deliverance. Help us to respond in worship. Amen.